Welcome to the Eucatastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. Thanks for joining us once again. I'm Joel Harrison. I'm joined by my co-host, Dave Taylor, who, as you know now, is our Batman. Dave is currently undertaking Lent, of course, in an attempt to become Rowan Williams. So, Dave, what is your number one Rowan Williams practice? Um, saying eucatastrophe. <laughs> uh, oh, no, eucharist. Um, and uh, I'm not trimming my eyebrows. That's, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. As opposed it, to you were? In solidarity. All right. Yeah. Okay. On that note... This week, we're continuing to unpack some of the themes and ideas, some of the things that we're interested in in this podcast. Um, we're going to do so by looking at an essay by J.R.R. Tolkien called On Fairy Tales. Now, this essay is where we get our name, the Eucatastrophe, from. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that's legal, that we could just do that, take from. Tolkien's I, I don't think he TM'd it. Yeah. <laughs> he did it. He's not going to be complaining anytime soon. I'm actually, it's interesting because I'm actually not a massive Tolkien fan, <laughs> right? I found yeah. watching the films in New Zealand, everyone would applaud at the end of the films. There was no one from the production crew there. Yeah. Everyone just applauded because it was like we were congratulating ourselves. Yeah. Saying, this ha is us. Have, have, haven't we done well? <laughs> exactly. Uh, whereas you're like a massive Tolkien nerd, aren't you? Yeah, you yeah. could actually sit around and and enjoy Tom Bombadil. Yeah, I, I it might be a bit of not. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say he made Christianity made make sense for me. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I thought that was William Lane Craig for you, but oh, hey, yeah. guess not. All the tweets of um, what's that guy, John Piper? Why, why did you open that door? <laughs> <laughs> what? What you love it? You you you. I hear you every day He's shouting. Kalam powers activate. Anyway, let's move on. So we're looking at Tolkien's essay on fairy tales and why we're exploring why we called ourselves you catastrophe, uh, why we think being imaginative is good, um, how we think there is something of a desire for the transcendent, and maybe the church's role of, role of reflection and making things strange. So the name you catastrophe. Gosh, I'm going to have to get used to saying it, aren't I? Mm. Um, catastrophe for uh, Tolkien in this essay on fairy tales, he says it's a necessary feature of the fairy tale, and he defines it as the consolation or the joy of the good catastrophe. He says it's the unexpected upward turn in the story, the mm. joyous turn when things seem lost. It is sorrow and failure are not eliminated, but rather there is the joy of deliverance. So Tolkien says it is a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears. That sounds like us. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? So we've got this, we're basically crying a lot. Yes. <laughs> and occasionally having a little bit of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he says, you catastrophe is the denial of universal final defeat. Um, now, in this essay... Uh, he's talking about and trying to define what a fairy tale is or what we may call fantasy. But it's very clear that he's not just engaging in literary definition, but raising themes about what it means to be human. So by the end of the essay, it's more that he seems to be talking about how we should inhabit the mm. true fairy tale, uh, how our strange nature is redeemed, for example, in the strangeness of the incarnation. 
um, uh, our strange nature to be imaginative. So he has this great line about God is the Lord of angels and of men and of elves mm. because we are co-creators of the elves. Mm. Um, he talks about the strangeness of the incarnation that reveals our nature. And then he says the eucatastrophe of time and history is the resurrection. This is the overcoming of death and the affirming of creation that comes with it. It's the in- incarnation and then the resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. So in this essay, he sets out to define what a fairy tale is, as I said, and um, he, he, he says a fairy tale is this, is this place in which we're caught up in the perilous realm and the shadowy marches in which we engage with something enchanted and where magic must be taken as the most serious of truths. Um, we, uh, through fairy tale, we engage in fantasy and become sub-creators, he says, drawing on a world of stories in which we begin to cultivate new worlds. Uh, fundamentally, fantasy for him entails an imaginative capacity for what he calls arresting strangeness. Things, he says, can appear to be so natural under the sun, but that we can then become slave to what appears natural to us. Mm. Uh, he says that we then may become beset by potential boredom, the idea that nothing new can be done or nothing of importance or interest. You know, this almost echoes, if you're familiar with it, Charles Taylor on the malaises of modernity, mm. right? Nothing seems to matter because everything is possible, mm. right? People can identify, uh, can cultivate multiple ways of being and so on, and therefore it's in its relativity, none of it particularly important mm. perhaps. Now, so he says this could lead to deformed action, so violence and reaction to this, for example. He says instead we need to recover and we should meet, he says, the centaur and the dragon and the perhaps suddenly behold like ancient shepherds, sheeps and dogs and horses and wolves. I love that. You mm. know, he says, you know, we encounter the strangeness of something mm. in order to return back to the very materiality and naturalness of our lives with mm. some new sense of their or, or their imaginative and transcendental importance. Yeah. So the interesting one for him in books, I guess, would be the tree ends. Yes. And then yeah. learning to embrace actual trees through right. fa- fantastical trees yeah. that are living and, and embodied. Yeah. But I think he would even go, he would even go further than that. He is he is actually playing on something deeply personal that was already there in the trees themselves and the hills mm. being personal. Right. Um, but yeah, Tolkien spends pages and pages describing things, natural phenomena like trees, right. because he's in love with in in love with them. Um, they have their own being. Yeah, yeah. And he's learning. They're not to let that inert. and and through the kind of imaginative process, we let that kind of being uh, kind of rupture our normal experience, right. like letting it speak back to us. So here's this great line where he says, "It was in fairy stories that I first divined." the potency of the words Mm. and the wonder of the things such as stone and wood and iron tree and grass house and fire bread and wine i just to give it a really just Mm. a um ridiculous joel tinge to this i always i always imagined wouldn't it be wonderful to eat the perfect chicken leg you know like from fantasy literature (laughs) you know like you always imagine in these sort of medieval type fantasy worlds that they have these absolutely perfect chicken legs we just kind of bite it and it all comes off at once yeah, yeah yeah so anyway he's much more poetic i just think about the chicken leg right okay so 
This, though, this idea of making something strange or pointing to its um, importance, its relational, its relationship to ourselves, its transcendental importance, perhaps, also points to a problem and, and a desire in the world. So Tolkien, um, and a lot of Lord of the Rings could be read in this way. Mm. It's it's a, a reaction against sort of an industrial complex. Yes. So Saruman is the industrialist. Yes. Right. Who's he? He's also. Um He's also he's both an industrialist and he's a scientist and a bit of a particular sort as well, in that his his vice is that he must break things to understand them. Right. So um, when he kind of has his fall, he turns from Sermon the White to Sermon the Many Colors because he's broken light and refracted it into different colors, and that's his mindset. He he must deconstruct everything to, to understand it so that then he can turn nature to his ends. Um, so he's a, he's a fundamentally an industrialist, yeah. He turns um, Isengard into a, what I would call, and I'll talk about it in another episode, a sacrifice zone, mm. um, a place that's completely uninhabitable by anything but, but the most vile creatures. Mm. And even the creatures themselves are... Um, abominations that he's created and you get at that point this the um noah image of the flood that comes to wash it away and, and right? cleanse it yeah, yeah. That, that that the ants come nature itself right. reclaims right. the place right um so he in this essay on fairy tales he gives the example of real and it may seem strange to us of resisting electric street lamps mm. as the products of the robot age and he's he's not He's not a fan of light switches and lights. He thinks of them as having an ugly efficiency and an inferiority. Presumably, I'm thinking to just lighting a lamp, right? Mm. Which, again, would be a great thing to eat your chicken leg under. Um, but then you can think this also applies to bombs and machine guns. So the hobbits, mm. again, they don't know weapons of power, right? Yeah. They, they live in this sort of alternative. He even in this essay asks whether railway engineers would have designed better stations if they had been brought up on fantasy, if their desires, he said, were mm. for the heavens, an enchantment that creates a beautiful aesthetic mm. as opposed to a utilitarian calculus of what is necessary. Yeah, yeah. So this points to, in the essay, that we have this desire perhaps for beauty, enchantment, and holiness. Uh, well, I actually mean wholeness, but holiness as well maybe. Um, and he says this, for example, in communing with other living things, um, all these not all these fantasy uh, stories often point to being able to communicate with nature or with animals who have mm. their own language, and we have to do, discern it and learn it. So he points to a sense of separation there mm. that he says is very ancient, but also he says a sense that there was a severance, a strange fate, and guilt lies on us. He says, other creatures are like other realms with which man has broken off relations. So fantasy and this imagination is this desire to both reach for the heavens, but also in doing so to reach for mm. other beings around us. Yeah. Now, I think this uh, essay raises a number of interesting reflections. So I'm, I'm very glad we chose it yeah. <laughs> as part of our, uh, for our naming. Um, but you had, um, you had some thoughts on uh, reflections arising from it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, it touches on a number of different, very important themes for us. Um, I, I This idea of the um, problematic imagination is very interesting uh, for me. 
So um, actually it reminded me a lot of um, uh, our friend Matthew Tan, who's a theologian, did a, a lecture for the events that I used to run, Peace Talks, where he used to talk about how um, that the kind of capitalist cityscape can take on that function of aspiring to be the thing that elevates our mind. Mm. Um, so the city itself becomes this thing that aspires to penetrate the heavens for us. Um, and then that incorporating into that cityscape, the billboards that show angels enjoying cream cheese and things like that. And these things get um, turned, these, this desire for enchantment, the, the enchanting imagination um, becomes commodified um, and banalized, is that a word? Made banal um, uh, and a means of just selling us things. But then there's also other ways in which we we impose imagination um, and fantasy onto the world in a very unhelpful way, um, like creating things like um, ideas like capital that become the these completely abstract force um, that doesn't correspond to anything physical in the world, nevertheless becomes the organizing principle of a society that we ourselves become subject subject to. It becomes an I, a type of idolatry. Um, a fetish for us um, that uh, we end up having to serve. Um, and, um, or in critical theory terms, we might talk about ideology um, being a fantasy that we impose on the world, some transcend transcendental idea that's realer than the material world itself. The that, Volk. That then gets imposed on, well, uh, on the world. Like yeah, the people. The people or... Um, an idea about the flow of history being right. the um, Towards the ascent some, yeah. of a particular race or class or something like that. So um, I think this is interesting as well because um, it, it's part of what we're, I think, exploring is that this is very much contrary to what we'd call secularization theses, hmm. the idea that religion would be on precipitous decline or that there was a ascendancy of reason and the decline of uh, yes. religion and return and various other forms of secularization. Whereas we're talk I'm talking about the rise of dark fantasies. That's right. <laughs> or that religion never went yeah. away, but yes. actually took on different guises, yes. right? And so one of those guises is the dark fantasies of ideology or something. Yeah. Another one is um, sort of the commodification of religion, both yes. religion itself, yes. right? So we talk about- Or um, things that fulfill a religious function. Yeah. So we talk about like- um, Scape, uh, church for skateboarders. Right? Yeah. That's a very commodified church, but also mm. something like Nike. Yes. So Naomi Klein has this great passage where she talks about um, you're not just consuming the product, but you're yes. consuming the experience of athleticism, a yes. sense of transcendence, right? Yeah. Um, or Zizek talks about the coffee cup. We buy the coffee cup that is, has rain, Rainforest logo on it, and we, right. we're actually also um, consuming justice. Right, right, right. <laughs> so there's this post-material yeah. desire um, but it can also occlude actual oppressive conduct. So we buy Nike shoes for its post-material thing, its, mm. tra its transcendent quality, yes. while at the same time not really thinking about the actual very much contrary to, say, a Christian conception of transcendence, solidarity, justice, fraternity, mm. With love, other creatures. With yeah. other creatures, yep. namely the environment and the people making those yes. shoes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we won't go down this rabbit hole, but a fascinating side effect, uh, side issue with that is they're very good at commodifying social justice uh, imagery in their adver advertisements, um, Nike as well. So there you've got things happening on, on multiple ways. 
So, so, this, the, this so, so that's the means that the, 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 the fantasy impulse is something that kind of is deeply ingrained in our culture and can be uh, used for very uh, nefarious ends if it's turned towards kind of what I would call unholy ends. But this desire for fantasy is something that is profound and needs to be touched, tapped into for, I would say, anything like authentic religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that... I was saying at the beginning of the episode that Tolkien was so instrumental in me actually um, embracing my faith in the in, it, in its deepest sense um, because it made me simultaneously long for another world, mm. um, a longing that I'd kind of uh, pushed onto all sorts of uh, all, all sorts of other things. Like I think in my episode on, on of the Peacecast when I um, talked about bird watching, I talked about longing to 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 go to a different type of landscape, I thought that would fulfill this longing. But Tolkien talking about this desire for eucatastrophe, desire for another land to enter into, um, made me realize I actually had a kind of metaphysical or spiritual homesickness mm. um, that I needed to come back to the church or find uh, to to embrace the church to find <laughs> my home. In. Well, I, I yeah, and I think. For me, like we love pop culture and so on, and we can nerd mm. out and and there's and we try and justify it because we're nerds who want to justify ourselves to the yes. world. But um, but I think, for example, I was, I was watching um, what was I watching the other um day um some uh, Superman uh, animated film, and he says about humans that there is good there mm. and that they can be good. Yeah, and I think there's something about fantasy literature and fantasy um, genres and so on and pop culture in which there's a fundamental sense in which goodness is possible, right? This is why Superman's mm. so interesting because he's fundamentally like, what does it mean to be a good human? Yeah. Yep. Um, discovering that the goodness requires attention, attentiveness to communion, Yeah. how we relate to one another, how we relate to the heavens as Tolkien said, how we relate to nature around us and so on. Um, that we try and strive for a better relationship with people and other living things and so on. And I think that's why, in ways, I I have always found, you know, that sort of literature and that sort of film, uh, that sort of genre and so on appealing. Yeah. That it has that echo of actually maybe it's true when we say, and God said it was good. <laughs> yes. And and also I, I think it touches into that sub-creator idea. Right. Um, the things that I love in popular culture these gigantic um, shared universes. And we talk about, that's the language that we use, we talk about shared universes that literally these kind of, unfortunately, corporations have kind of created this entire world. And I could tell you an embarrassing amount about the genealogies of each and every character that's appeared in a Marvel film and and then going into the comic books and things like that. There's an incredibly intricate, interconnected web of relationships that exist there. And literally there's this entire world that's been created. And um, then I, I, you know, growing up with Star Wars in particular, that was something that just elevated my soul in, in a way that have not really kind of. Oh, I, I think I've said this before on this, on our, on a different iteration was that when the Ewoks hmm. do their joyous dance at the end of the return of the Jedi, I, I'm almost crying every time <laughs> because it's just this, I mean, maybe it's just simply because it's been there throughout my life. Yeah, but I, but I think there's something, uh, and I think this is why people are so disappointed with the prequels. What it was, 
that it, it was this kind of epic world and they've kind of, it's a very well realized world. So it's tapping in this capacity for creating worlds upon worlds that Tolkien talks about being this kind of feature of our humanity that way you've got this divine nature where we create. But when, when uh, I was a small child, there wasn't any prequels yet. Um, and I had to mentally fill in the gaps of all the things that are alluded to happening that were never presented to you. And that was incredibly powerful. And that's why the, I think even though prequels were objectively bad, they were also bound to fail because they had a generation of fans that had created the world themselves. They, they had told the story of the fall of Anakin Skywalker and things like that. And that was so real to them. Because they are sub-creators. <laughs> yeah. We've got, we've, gone, we've gone into Star Wars, which will always take us into a rabbit hole. But I think that one of the main things that... I'm contributing it, to the remake of The Last yeah, Jedi. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. This one is another the, thread that we'll One of the things we're talking about here is that, you know, theorists will talk about the resurgence of religion. And yeah. they may mean fundamentalism. They may mean relationships in civil society. They may mean darker instances of this, which just simply through royal commissions and yeah. so on. But actually there's always that religious desire that seems to permeate and it can be orientated, as Augustine says, mm. towards true ends yes. or towards the thing itself, yeah. right? The thing itself being like the consumed good or yeah. true ends, he says, is the God in who we participate, who is triune, who mm. is love, who is solidarity and mm. fraternity and so on. So that's one thing that's just so interesting in this essay, that desire mm. for something transcendental, that religious desire that we think is actually permeates through society. Yes. And then the second one that um, he says there is that fantasy, the exercise of the imagination and our desire meeting that and propelling mm. forwards can create arresting strangeness. Now, you've reflected on this a little mm. bit about um, the task of reflection being to make things strange. Yeah. And, you know, I was reminded of this um, uh, going to an excellent uh, lecture by Alison Milbank um, at Anglican Deaconess Ministries in Sydney. It was a fantastic lecture where she reflected on this idea um, in Tolkien slightly, um, but also in the work of uh, G.K. Chesterton as well, this idea that part of the vocation of the theological uh, imagination or the Christian generally is to allow ourselves to make the world strange to us. And uh, Ch Chesterton even talks about this in, I think, Orthodoxy, where he talks about a man kind of going on a trip around the world and getting turned around and coming back to London. And he's arrived at the same place unknowingly, but he looks at it like a foreign land. And that's, um, that's what theology is meant to do with us. It's meant to take our basic presuppositions and, uh, make us strangers to them and them strange to us. Um, and so, so much of what we talked about last episode and alluded to this episode was about how so many of the fiercest debates um, that seem to take place in our culture, whether it's um, in parliament or in uh, news outlets or on social media, um, are basically, when it boils down to it, intra-liberal fights or fights between people that are different ends of the same continuum, um, uh, thinking that they have a fundamentally different worldview, whereas what we were alluding to last episode is they're, they're fundamentally in agreement about the primacy of the individual um, and, and things like that. And the role of the imagination for the Christian is to make that strange, to think, to, to look at the world in fresh and different um, ways and it, it comes. Uh, Zizek has a 
I've alluded to him much more. I've, I've given the impression that I am much more of a Zizek fan than I am. But he makes a fantastic point uh, when, when reflecting on the kind of apocalyptic nature of a lot of our popular culture. But, and he talks specifically even about um, Avengers movies and things like that. He notices that even in the apocalypses that happen um, in these things, things still fundamentally take place within a liberal or capitalist paradigm. And he says what that shows us is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Right. Um, and one of the ways in which I think we theology needs to make the world strange for us is to think about what is the unquestionable assumptions? What are the things that we can't even constitute meaningful questions in our culture about to, to challenge and make those those things strange. Right. So, and so, so much of our church life, rather than doing this, actually ends up reinforcing instead the same old narratives, the same old um, ways of forming common life. Well, it does that how? So it does that through, for example, understanding, say, the church as a collection of individuals on their authentic paths. Yes. So um, if we one of the things we alluded to once um, on the previous episode was um, the passivity of contemporary evangelical church services that you're you there receive a product you're just receiving a message and I, I think i alluded to when we were talking today that the closest thing that we have to a, a participatory liturgy is that evangelicals write notes while they listen to a sermon yeah, right um and things like that yeah. but it's also one of the kind of uh, one of the elements that kind of becomes exhausting about our culture um, that is one of the fundamental organizing principles of our culture is the desire for perpetual novelty um, because we are a market-based culture, markets require people co consistently and constantly consuming. And they can only consume if they want something new. And so we we in our own a culture that always needs the desire for something new to be um, uh, insatiable. Um, uh, and so one one uh, Christian thinker that I like talked about our culture as a Viagra culture, where a culture that desires to desire. Um, and it's an almost an infinite regress in this and regard. It can, but it can also have diminishing returns, right? Yes. In the sense that that novelty will um, not give us the same hit yes. continue over time. Yes. Um, and we may want to, at that point, turn to something that has sort of a deeper yeah. richness to it. Yeah. And so sometimes our churches can, can um, uh, attempt to emulate the culture negatively by perpetually trying to be novel. And so we're at the reinventing idea. liturgy. Yep. Um, so liturgy is never is, is is constantly, if it exists, rewritten and things like that. Creeds are even adjusted, um, and uh, the song list always has to change. We don't fix set to a fix, uh, fixed um, uh, readings and things like that. Um, but ironically, the strange thing that that produces is boredom. It produces boredom because novelty is not novel. Novelty is the same old thing, um, and the more that we change, the more that we stay the same in our culture. And so, one of the most countercultural things you can do in our culture um, is to be, strangely enough, boring um, and fixed. Is what I would what I mean by boring, um, and allowing things to form us to to allow us to become attentive to what's in front of us. Is, am I making any sense here, John? Oh, absolutely. Um I was thinking, you know, to go back to your point about um, things that are taken for granted, and mm. uh, and you know this this notion that we have this 
fierce debate going on, mm. but in fact, what we have is warring sides of the same you know same coin, yeah, essentially. And uh, you know that just echoes you know, Charles Taylor, the philosopher we both like, mm. talks about the social imaginary right mm. as the way people imagine their social relations their existence, how things fit together, how we understand groups and institutions falling together in a way that just presents a kind of normative understanding that is unas- uh, that is just simply assumed mm. um, in any given situation. Um, so you can think about this in a political sense as well. Um, we talk about separation of church and state uh, as though that's a natural given, mm. about the separation of reason from faith, politics from religion. Uh, we talk about the rights talk, the idea that the... Um, the state is uh, there to facilitate and negotiate mm. and further the rights of individuals as though that is the end goal of mm. political authority, right? And this is on that both left and right spectrum. They will use the exactly the same, you know, hermeneutic, as it were, right, mm. to talk about the goals of uh, public life. Mm. Um, and it's And it's the question about, well, how do you – break through that how do you make things strange again so it made me think just as a story about when i, I lived in the states for a little while mm. and there this idea that the politics is a is the flip side of the same coin is even stark is even yeah. more real there um and i got asked what's my politics and i started thinking oh gosh how am i going to describe it in this kind mm. of democrat versus republican fierce world and i said oh well i'm i'm um I'm interested in institutions. And they said, oh, okay. And I said, yeah, I'm interested in families. I said, oh, you're a family values guy. And I went, no, no. Didn't want them thinking I was, you know, uh, focused mm. on the family kind of person. Yeah. And then I said, I'm also interested in unions. And they went, oh, uh, uh, yeah. uh. And I said, and I'm interested in universities. And I'm interested in churches. And yep. at that point, uh, I, I I think I was just some alien, right? <laughs> and I found this not just there, but yeah. also here. When you say this and you talk about that kind of politics, it may actually cut across things in a kind of more solidaristic, socially pluralist, um, interested in the infrastructure and architecture of a common life. Mm. You know, that, that's a very different way to talking about politics, I think, mm. and it presents a certain strangeness to it, especially if, mm. as I do, you think that a lot of that understanding emanates from the central expression of the church itself, right, that then cultivates the um, desire for association and so on in various places and, and so on. Anyway, so... I think yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, strangeness, we- the strangeness of it will continue and we will probably be speaking into i don't know howling into the wind <laughs> as it were uh we're out of time uh so thank you for joining us uh for another episode of the catastrophe uh please uh subscribe to us on um whatever platform you listen to your podcasts uh please share us uh, on social media um tell your friends about us um so that we can get the audience that we need and long for. Um, please follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast, And you can see us, uh, find us on Twitter at, um, at UCAT, that's E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast. Um, and yeah, interact with us there. It really help us out. Thanks for joining us and joining us uh, next week as we turn to look at one of my favourite thinkers, um, the German philosopher Hannah Arendt.